Father, we are grateful that you have uh, chosen to uh, make yourself known to us, that you, you've loved us and you've pursued us uh, in Christ, and you've loved us and pursued us by giving us uh, your word that, that also leads us uh, to, to Christ. And so, God, we're thankful for it, and we pray that you would help us as we turn to Scripture now, that you would give us uh, humility, uh, that we would have humble hearts, hearts that are, that are humble and contrite, and that, that would posture themselves to tremble under the authority uh, and the wisdom of your word. God, that we would come, uh, come to this text and come to your word with, with a, uh, a desire to be teachable, uh, with the confession that we do not know uh, as we need to know, and we don't do as we need to do, and so we need your instruction, we need your grace, uh, we need you to transform us and to teach us. And so, God, I pray that you would make that the posture of every single heart uh, in this room, mine included. We pray that as you do that, Father, that you would lead us to see Jesus Christ, who is the, the centerpiece uh, of human history. Uh, he, he is the one Lord, the one Savior. Uh, and so, God, help us to see him in his, in his glory and his power and his grace and his beauty and in his mercy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, you probably know this already, but um, the best method for, for teaching is to teach by example, right? That is the best pedagogical strategy, is to teach by example is not to just, uh, it's not sufficient to just have somebody tell you, uh, you ought to do this. Uh, this is what it looks like, here are the instructions, go on your way and do it. it. It is completely different in a beneficial way to be taught by example. To say, hey, this is what you should do, let me show it to you or let me, let me model it for you and now let me watch you do it. I learned this lesson uh, again in a fresh way recently when my wife tasked me with an impossible task. She tasked me with the job of selling uh, the stroller on Craigslist. She said, uh, hey, I'm leaving. Uh, somebody's going to show up at 7, and they're here to buy the stroller. All I need you to do is to uh, show them how it opens and closes. Uh, I said, well, uh, <laughs> I don't know who you think I am. Uh, <laughs> you've known me for like 11 years. You know that actually is not in my skill set. And so she said, hey, I'm going to text you. So she sent me the longest text I've ever seen in my life on the instructions on how to open and close the stroller. Looked at the text, she looked at the text, and then she's like, you know what, let me teach you by example. So she takes me down and, and she shows me, you do this, you pull the red thing, you kick it in the back, and then you slam it shut and pull your hand out real quick so you don't lose your fingers. That's how you open and close a stroller. And so since she showed me by example, I started to feel confident. I thought, I, I can do this. You know, pull it, kick it, slam it. Okay, I can handle this. And so when 7 o'clock came, the lady showed up. And because I had been taught by example, I was actually looking forward to this Craigslist transaction. I was looking forward to actually modeling what I know now. And so she came, and she's like, oh, how does it work? I was like, let me show you. You pull it, you kick it, you slam it. Just watch your fingers. That's how you open and close the stroller. And I'm glad to report that the transaction went well, and she's got it, she's happy, and we got 150 bucks. The power of teaching by example, Right? <laughs> As we look at 1 Corinthians, we've been seeing the Apostle Paul teach by example. The Corinthians, to set context, were in a city called Corinth in the first century. It's a city much like Boston in some ways, diverse, dense, global, a city where people were driven by ambition, where people were driven by sensuality. Anything could go. And within that city, God had birthed a movement of the gospel. And so this new church in Corinth needed the direction of the difference. They needed instruction, rather, in the difference between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of Corinth. And they struggled to understand the wisdom of God. And so Paul teaches them by example. In chapter 9, he teaches them by example by showing them 
what it looks like to model Christ in our, in our actions and attitudes towards others. Paul teaches by example in chapter 9 by saying, I lay down my rights and privileges as Jesus did in order to benefit others. And he uses himself as a teaching example so that the Corinthians would do the same. Here in chapter 10, we're going to see that Paul again teaches by example, but he teaches by example in order not to get them to do an external thing, but for them to understand an inward disposition, an inward infection that lives within their hearts called idolatry. And Paul, in order to teach by example, doesn't just uphold himself, but points them to look back at the example of their spiritual forefathers, the people of Israel, to understand how idolatry in the heart truly works and how idolatry in the heart is a deep trap and snare that threatens each and every one of us. Paul is going to teach by example to show them what it looks like to fight against the idols in our hearts when we face trials and how the way that we fight is through trusting in the faithfulness of God. Let's look at the text here. We're going to look at the first uh, 13 verses of chapter 10 and see how Paul begins to teach by example. The first thing that he's going to show us in these first 13 verses is really the diagnosis around idolatry. He's going to show us the depths that idolatry has in our hearts, how deep its claws sink in to our very uh, nature and being because we are impacted by sin and brokenness. The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all drank the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Paul is showing us a diagnosis about the multifaceted danger of idolatry that lives in our hearts. Notice what he does here, how he's going to teach by example on this topic of idolatry in the heart. He's going to teach by example by holding up the people of Israel as an example, as a learning point from redemption history uh, for the Corinthians, but then also for us. Notice this, the first four verses, Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be clueless. I don't want you to be asleep during this message. I want you to understand what's really going on. I want you to learn from this example of your spiritual forefathers and sisters that went before you. I want you to understand something, Corinthians. There's a tone of warning and caution here, that if we are wise, we will listen to this warning and this caution. Paul lays out the history of Israel. 
Israel is redeemed by God, an oppressed people, saved by God's miraculous divine intervention, freed from the grip and the evil tyranny of an, of an evil ruler, Pharaoh, and set free, released from oppression, uh, physical and spiritual oppression, in order to be relieved from that oppression and set in a new context with a new freedom, the freedom to worship and follow God and to then be a light to the whole world, to all the nations of what it looks like to follow God. That is what God has done for the people of Israel. And on that journey of being set free, they began to go to a journey to this new land where they were going to dwell with God. And on that journey, Paul says all of the benefits and assets that the people of Israel had. Look at verses 1 through 4. He says, our fathers were under the cloud as they were being set free. Guess what? God guided Israel through his literal physical presence embodied in a cloud. God was with Israel. Not only that, they passed through the Red Sea. God parted the waters to triumph over evil, Pharaoh, and sin. That's what God did. He miraculously intervened into human history to set his people free. And they saw it, and they marveled, and they wondered, and they worshiped. But not only that, they were baptized into Moses. Not only was God with them in a literal physical cloud, not only did God miraculously save them through the parting of the waters, but God gave them a leader worth following, Moses. Not only that, God provided them spiritual food and spiritual drink as they're going through the wilderness to get to the promised land where they would dwell with God and be God's people in God's place under God's rule, not only did God provide a cloud, not only did God save them miraculously, not only did God give them a leader of humility to follow, but God gave them, and give me an amen, God gave them food to eat. Amen? Manna from heaven. Dropping down God's provision for them. The text shows us that ultimately that, that shows us the provision of Christ. And, and Paul says, these are all the things Israel had. And then verse 5, nevertheless, with some of them, God was not pleased. Why was God not pleased? Because despite their deliverance, despite God's presence, despite God's provision, despite God giving them a leader worth following, they turned away from God and followed idols. Here's Paul's point for the Corinthians and for you and for me. Paul's point is, if Israel had the literal physical guidance of God in the cloud, had Moses leading them, had food coming down from heaven, seen God part the waters to save them, if they had all of these things and yet they fell into the temptation of idolatry, what makes you think it will not happen to you? Paul says in verse 6, these things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. That we might not crave evil. This crave, this desire language is speaking about idolatry. It's speaking about an over-desire. Not a desire for a good thing, but an over-desire for a good thing to the point that it turns into a, a God thing, a divine type of thing. We begin to look at things as if they can give us what only God can provide. This is the danger of idolatry. This cautionary tale that Paul gives us here in these verses, it's not a cautionary tale of be good. It's a cautionary tale of beware. Be alert that the very idolatry that derailed Israel from experiencing God's plan, presence, and purpose, that very seed of idolatry in their hearts is in your heart as well. Beware. Beware. 
Idolatry we can define this way. Worshiping or finding ultimate meaning, purpose, or significance in something other than God himself. One writer puts it like this in a book called The Idol Factory. It says, idolatry is the main category in Scripture to describe unbelief. It is, high, it is a highly sophisticated idea, drawing together the complexities of motivation in individual psychology, our social environment, but also the unseen world. Idols are not just on pagan altars, but they live in well-educated human hearts and minds. This means that you can have idols in your heart without having a statue in front of your face. One of my favorite authors, David Foster Wallace, who wrote a really long book called Infinite Jest. If you've read it, come see me after and give me a high five. He was a great author, was an agnostic, had really great insight into the human heart, though he wasn't a person of any faith uh, himself. But he said this, he says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. Everybody worships. There is no such thing as not worshiping. What he means is everybody turns to something for the ultimate hope, comfort, security, significance, purpose. The only choice we get, he says, is what we choose to worship. Paul is like a skilled soul physician here, guiding us in the Corinthians, showing us the cautionary tale of Israel as a way to teach us and to say to us this, beware of the idolatrous bent that lives in your heart. Beware. It's a shared infection across humanity. We're broken by sin, cut off from God, and so we're going to worship something. Beware of that bent within you. But like a good soul physician, the Apostle Paul isn't going to just give us a generic diagnosis. He's going to give us a specific diagnosis in order to give us a specific remedy. And here is what the Apostle Paul is going to show us. He's going to pull in this section, as we've seen, he's pulling from all different portions of the Old Testament scriptures in order to give a diagnosis that we have a multifaceted, idolatrous bent within our hearts, meaning that our idols, our desire for idolatry in our hearts, it shapeshifts. It takes different forms depending on the trials, circumstances, and situations in which we find ourselves. And because it's shifty and it, sh- and it changes forms and shapes, we need to be aware of what lives in us. The two main circumstances that the Apostle Paul gives us from this cautionary t- tale are this. In the waiting and in the wilderness. This first tale he gives us in, uh, in verse 6. These things took place as an example for us, that we may not desire evil as, some of, uh, as they did. Uh, verse, verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. This is in the waiting. Paul is showing us scenario one, trial one, uh, circumstance number one, in which our desire to turn to idols flares up significantly. Scenario one, circumstance one, trial one is this, in the waiting when we don't know where God is. This uh, verse that he quotes in uh, verse 7 is going back to Exodus 32, the the circumstance with the golden calf. The circumstance with the golden calf uh, reads like this, Exodus uh, 32, verses 1 and 2. When the people of Israel saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, he was on the mountain receiving scripture from God and, and meeting with God. When he delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. 
So here's the circumstance that Paul is pointing Israel back to to learn from, or rather pointing the Corinthians back to to learn from, that Israel was saved out of oppression and slavery in Egypt. They are being guided by God, guided by Moses, guided by the cloud, provided for all of these things. And Moses goes up Mount Sinai to meet with God. And maybe he's up there, we could probably say maybe up there a couple weeks, maybe up to a month, something like that. He's up there. And Israel doesn't know exactly when he's coming down or what's happening. So in the meantime, you know what their heart says? Hey, I know what God just did for us. I remember, you remember how we parted the sea? Yeah, yeah. Remember how we followed us by cloud? Yeah, yeah, that was great. Hey, Moses isn't here. God's here. We don't know where God, we don't know where God is. Hey, let's make a new God. Why don't we take our earrings? And Aaron, why don't you fashion for us a new God? Because our God is, is, is true and is real, but he's not here. We, we need something. Give us something to worship. In the waiting, when we don't know where God is, our appetite for idolatry flares up in the waiting because we ask ourselves this question, where is God? Some of you are in the waiting right now. The best way to describe your season of life right now is in the waiting. You're in between jobs. You're waiting for God to come through on this thing that you've been praying for. You're you're, you're waiting to figure out what the next phase of your life is going to be. You're in the waiting. When you are in the waiting, if you fall into thinking, maybe, maybe, where is God? Maybe God's not with me. Your tendency towards idolatry flares up. And here's why. When we think that God is late, when God is not operating according to our timeline, or when God is maybe not going to provide as we're waiting, we begin to feel a certain thing. And we feel this thing common to all people called fear. Now, how many of you love to be afraid? You just cherish it. You say, I I love to be afraid. Nobody likes that. Now, when we feel fear, our desire and our reaction, when fear flares up in our hearts, our desire is to find a a feeling of security. And so if you're in the season of waiting and you're wondering, where is God? And you're afraid. You don't know what's next. You're afraid. Is God really going to provide? Is this really going to work out? I don't know what's happening. I, I can't deal with uncertainty. When you're afraid, you'll look for security. And guess what? Culturally, we have a buffet of idols offered to us culturally that all say, hey, you want security? I'll give it to you. You want to feel secure? Come here. You want to feel comforted? Retail therapy at H&M. We offer all sorts of idols to provide security and comfort for us in the midst of waiting. That is something that our culture has a PhD in. And our hearts also have great skill in latching onto idols while we're waiting for God. Are you in the waiting? When we're in the waiting and we're looking for security, we might make an idol of our career. When we're in the waiting and we're looking for security, we might make an idol of our reputation because we feel secure and at home when people like us. We might make an idol of our comfort because it calms the fear and the trembling waters that are in our soul. Beware of our bent towards idolatry. The second circumstance that the Apostle Paul shows us is this, is in the wilderness when life is hard. Look at verse 10. Verse 10, the Apostle Paul says this, that some of the people put Christ to the test. Some of the people grumbled and they were destroyed by by God's judgment. This is pulling from Numbers 14. When the people of Israel are on the journey in the wilderness, journeying from Egypt to uh, the promised land, and Numbers 14 says this, then the congregation raised a loud cry 
And the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, We wish that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we would have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us up into this land to fall and die by the sword? Our wives and our children will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. This is in the wilderness when life is hard. Now, I've got to cut the Israelites a little bit of slack. They're basically camping for years. And so I, this is how I feel when I go camping for days, right? I wish I was dead. Lord, just why am I here, right? Camping, we can agree uh, it, that camping is an evil thing that should not be done. <laughs> Scripturally sounds. It's in second, uh, second Opinions, chapter 10. Camping is unrighteous. But in all seriousness, when we're in this season, and the wilderness can be like the waiting, but the wilderness is a little bit different. The wilderness is when just things are just hard. You don't know what, maybe it's a trial that feels big, maybe it's a trial that feels small, maybe it's a relationship that is completely deteriorated, that was so uh, special and life-giving, maybe it's getting laid off, maybe it's just a, a season or stretch where your, your, your work hours have just picked up and there, there's, there's trouble in, 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 in your family and just, it feels like everything that could go wrong has been going wrong and you know you just got to press through, that's the wilderness. Feels like the wilderness when you move to a new city and you don't know anyone and you're just trying to rebuild your life from scratch, or you've lived in the city long enough that everybody you know and love has already moved away, and so you're trying to rebuild your life from scratch, right? The wilderness, when things are hard, when trials come, when life is difficult, we are prone, when we are in the wilderness, life is difficult, we are prone to look at the difficulty of our presence, or our present, rather, and to say, I wish I could go to my past. I wish I could go back to Egypt. I wish there was an idol I could turn to that would make me feel a little bit comforted, make me feel a little bit secure, make me feel a little bit loved, make me feel a little bit of a release, which is no wonder why when we get stressed, we are prone to all sorts of temptations, right? You can resist temptation when everything is going great, but when something goes wrong, everything flares up. That's what we're learning from the example of Israel. But the important thing for us to see here is this, is that the hard circumstance of the wilderness, the hard circumstance of the waiting, they did not create the evil desire in Israel and in us, but rather the circumstance of the wilderness and the circumstance of the waiting, all they did was squeeze us tightly enough to expose what was in us all along, our bent towards idolatry. When life is most difficult, our idols become most appealing. So we need to heed this warning soberly. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Are you in the wilderness or are you in the waiting? One of the ways we can heed the wisdom of this text is to actually be aware of where we are in our life, what we're feeling, what pressures are around us. Some of you are like, no, I'm in the victory lap. Everything is great. Well, listen to this and play this message again in a week, right? When, when things happen. Are you in the wilderness? Are you in the waiting? Are you tempted towards a particular form of idolatry in this season of your life? Are you looking to escape through comfort because things are hard? Are you looking to cope with whatever you're dealing with through accumulating power, through, through feeling a sense of approval? What are you prone to? And maybe the most important question is, 
Are you willing to learn from the cautionary tale in this text that God is giving us? Are you willing to embrace God's diagnosis about my heart, your heart, the Corinthians' heart, Israel's heart, that it is bent towards idolatry in a way that is much deeper than we think? Are you willing to embrace that diagnosis in order that God can heal, redeem, and sustain you? Idolatry damages and impacts us. We see it here in the text. It cut certain people of Israel off from experiencing God's purpose, plan, and blessing of the promised land. But it also impacted the whole community. Idolatry is a diagnosis within us, but its impact is communal. It's not just an individual impact. It is a communal impact. We see this in the text as we look at verses 14 onward. Let's look there. I want to give you a heads up as we look at this next section. You're going to, we're going to read it, and it's going to feel like, how does this fit? But Paul's point is this. Paul is going to make this point that if we participate in communion, we are connected to Jesus. And if we participate in idolatry, we are connected to the demonic, and that has an impact on the people around us. Idolatry has a communal impact. Idolatry in the heart leads to damage and sin in the community. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in verses 14 and onward. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Based on this diagnosis, this warning, this example, flee from it. I speak as to sensible people. You have common sense. Judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, communion, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul is doing a couple of things here. He's showing that when we participate in communion with the church, it is a communal thing that has communal benefits and builds us up. Similarly, when we participate in, in idolatry, particularly for the Corinthians, when they would participate not in eating food sacrificed to idols, but actually eating in uh, ceremonies that were dedicated towards idols, they were participating not in something of God, but something of, of the demonic, something that, was, that was, uh, they had an evil force behind it. And Paul says, just as communion has positive communal impacts, so this sort of idolatry has detrimental community, community impacts. Beware. We don't want to provoke God towards a right anchor. Beware. Paul's upshot is this, is that we cannot serve both God and idols. The upshot for this from this text as well, for this section in particular, is to understand that the bent in our hearts does not just lead us towards damaging outcomes, but can damage everybody around us. Paul continues on further to show this communal impact aspect of idolatry in verses 23 through 32. He says this, quoting a Corinthian sort of saying that they had sort of perverted and used it as an excuse for anything. 23, all things are lawful, the Corinthians would say, but Paul corrects and says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. 
If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of the conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but his. Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So Paul is mirroring some of his teaching in chapter 8 on food sacrifice to idols. You can go listen to that sermon. I don't have time to get into that, but he's making this distinction that if food is, 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 is a sacrifice to idols and is sold in the meat market at CVS or Star Market or something, eat it, buy it, it's no problem. But if it's a thing where it's, this is a ceremony of idol worship in a temple and all of these things, that's idolatry. Have nothing to do with that. And his upshot, his point really is verse 28 tied into verse uh, 32, that Paul says this in 32, give no offense. In 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, here's the key, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Paul is showing us something very important here when it comes down to idolatry. Paul says, do not seek your own advantage, which mirrors back to the warning of verse six, craving the wrong thing. Paul's connection is this, is that when we crave the wrong thing, that produces idolatry in the heart, which produces damage in the community, which tarnishes God's name and purpose. But when we do not crave the wrong thing, when we crave the right thing, when we look not to our own interests, but to what is good and what is right, that leads to the community being built up, God's name being honored, people being saved, and the community being strengthened. Do you see the two things that Paul is holding up here? Paul is showing them by example the contrast between the example he is following, which was set by Christ, and the example of Israel, which we are prone to walk in ourselves. Now, we all know that idolatry has huge communal impacts. All we have to do is to think about the times in our life where we became so obsessed with that one good thing that it turned into a controlling thing and everything around us suffered. You ever see that happen? You ever see that happen in someone's relationship? right? When they become overly fixated on work and you see how it begins to impact their friendships, how it begins to impact maybe their marriage, as it begins to impact their family and their parenting. We know that idolatry doesn't just damage us, but it begins to have a ripple effect in everything and everyone around us. Will we learn from this cautionary tale and example? So what do we do? What do we do if we have these seeds of idolatry in us that are so pervasive and so damaging? What do we do? First thing, I want to give us some practical things that we can do, and then I want us to hit the foundational thing that God is calling us to do. Look at verse 14. This is about as practical as it can get. This is what God says through the Apostle Paul, verse 14. Flee from idolatry. How about that? How you, those of you that love application, right? <laughs> That's it. My job is done. Flee from idolatry. Run from it. Have nothing to do with it. Tighten your shoes and sprint away from idolatry. It will damage you. It will cut you off from experiencing God's presence and blessing in this season and beyond if you give yourself over to idolatry. Run from it. Verses 6 and 8 teach us the second practical thing that we do. Learn from the example of Israel. Learn. Understand it. 
There is much here for us to even think that this this whole story of Scripture, not just the parts with Jesus in it explicitly, the whole story of Scripture is for our building up our instruction and our worship of God. Learn from the wisdom of God's Word and the example shown before us in this text. But then we get the encouragement of verses 12 and 13. In one way, you can think about this passage, it feels like it's a, 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 a sort of tablespoon of warning, right? A kind of bitter medicine. But there is a, there is a cup, there is a, a, a well of encouragement for us in this text, and we see it in verses 12 through 13. Verse 12 tells us to take heed lest we fall, be sober-minded, understand that this can happen to us as well. And then 13, the encouragement comes in, the encouragement Calvary marches forward. 13 says this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Man, that's good news. Now, y'all looking at me like like I didn't read that verse. Do you hear what it said? Do you hear what it said? God is faithful. He will provide a way out of any temptation trial that you face. Do you really believe this? Do you really know this? Listen, one of the important good news pieces for us here is that 13, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. Here's what Paul is saying is that any temptation that you face when you're in the wilderness or in the waiting, any temptation, it's a temptation to lust, it's a temptation to greed, it's a temptation to anger, it's a temptation to whatever, any temptation that you face, a temptation to, to, to be despondent, any temptation you face is not just your thing. This doesn't diminish what you feel. But it's not just you. And this is important because here's what our idolatrous heart does when we face temptation. We begin to think, oh, it's just me. If people just knew what I was going through. Oh, me, me, me. We turn into a pity party and a pity party turns into self-justification and self-justification turns into idolatry. God is encouraging us by saying, you're not the only one. There's a lot of people that are dealing with this. There's a lot of people that feel overwhelmed. There's a lot of people that feel that life is coming and gripping them by the neck and squeezing everything out of them, and they have no self-control or resolve to keep walking with Jesus. You are not the only one. But then the, the even better news, that God will not allow us to be put in a situation of trial and temptation that is beyond our ability or a trial or temptation or situation that will overwhelm and crush us. God, when we find our way into a mess, God always breaks through to find and produce a way for us to get out. That is what Paul is telling us here. Because God in his mercy, love, and care as our heavenly father understands us so thoroughly that he will custom make the way out of whatever trial our stupid selves put ourselves in or whatever trial this broken world springs upon us that had nothing to do with any decision that we make. God cares that much. He is that faithful. He will make a custom way out for us. Do you know that? This is the kindness and mercy of God. Think about this. God deals with you tenderly, not just when you're doing well, but he deals with you tenderly in the middle of your temptation by making a way out customized just for you. 
He knows your ability. He knows your wiring. He makes the way out just for you, knowing exactly who you are, where you are, what is happening with you. He is that kind and that faithful. I wonder what would happen if you remembered that. Reading these verses encourages me, but it also uh, uh, convicts me because I think about how I am as a parent with my son. My oldest son is five and a half, but he's tall, so he looks like he's seven and a half. And he's smart, seems articulate, so it feels like he's 10. And then he's funny and sarcastic in a good way, so it feels like he's 12. So I treat my five-and-a-half-year-old son a lot of times like he's 12. I expect him to be obedient like a 12-year-old. I expect him to be self-controlled like a 12-year-old. I expect him to be respectful like a 12-year-old all the while forgetting that he is actually five and a half. Listen, God does not deal with you like that. This text tells us when we are in the middle of trial and temptation, God knows you completely and provides the way out so that you can endure and go forward with him in a way that doesn't expect you to be at level 100 when you're really at level 40. God deals with you according to your ability, and more importantly, according to his faithfulness. This is how we deal with the temptation of idols in the face of trials. I want to encourage you in this way. This promise that he will not tempt us beyond what we can bear, he will will give us a way out because he is faithful. This is a promise you can take to heaven's bank in any circumstance or trial you are in. Big or small. Grab hold of it. Believe it. Ask God to help you. Lay claim to it. God is faithful. Now, some of you might be thinking this, yeah, but how come this thing that I'm in right now feels so hard? Well, I would ask you this, are you remembering and looking to the faithfulness of God? Of course we feel overwhelmed in trials and temptation when we fixate on the trial and the temptation. But if we fixate on the faithfulness of God, we find a way forward. We fix it on the faithfulness of God by, by turning to people in community to help us continue on that journey. Do people know the trial or the temptation that you're facing? If you are trying to face it on your own, you are not clinging to the faithfulness and wisdom of God that says you can do nothing by yourself. Let somebody know. You say, oh, this trial, this temptation is so overwhelming. Well, I would ask you, are you turning to the faithfulness of God in Scripture? Are you you giving yourself over to Scripture to be encouraged? Because, listen, the wisdom of Scripture is that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When Jesus was tempted, he was sustained by the faithfulness of God shown to him in Scripture. Turn to God's community. Turn to God's word. That is how we are sustained through his faithfulness in the midst of trials. That is the practical. But I want us to go to the foundational. The foundational way of escape and cure in the face of our trials needs to be at the heart level because this this infection is at the heart level. There is no way you can escape the clutches of idolatry on your own. It must come through an internal reality happening in our hearts by the power of God. And the way that we escape the temptation of idolatry, the way we make our way out to endure walking with God in the midst of trials is this, is to believe and grab hold of the faithfulness of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. Hurricane Ike came through and hit, uh, hit the Texas area, I think, in 2008. It leveled and demolished this one town in particular. 
Gilchrist, Texas. And if you look up the photo of it, you see this whole, it's eerie. If you look up the photo, you see this whole town decimated and leveled. But then there's one house that's standing. Trials and temptations feel like this storm that comes upon us and throws everything off. But the one thing that can withstand in the midst of trials and temptations is the truth that God is faithful. And if we place ourselves under that truth, we too will endure. And the way we place ourselves under the truth that God is faithful is not just practical things, but it is a foundational heart reality of believing this, re- this truth that God himself, who gave his son Jesus to die for our sins, sin was the greatest trial we have ever faced. Judgment from God, the greatest trial we have ever known. And if God would be so loving as to deliver us from that, as to make a way out of our problem of sin by giving his son to die and to bestow grace and mercy on us and forgiveness on us, if God would love us in that trial. He is a safe refuge for any other trial we face. So we grab hold of the faithfulness of God shown in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's how we endure. Some of you are enduring by trying to be good. You need to endure by grabbing hold of the truth that God is faithful. What season are you in? What idols are banging down the door of your heart saying, give in to me? What temptation is coming around you trying to squeeze and apply pressure in every area of your life? Will you listen to the wisdom of your heavenly father through the apostle Paul to be sober-minded about the idolatry that lives in your heart, but then to be super encouraged by the truth that God is faithful. How will you respond? Christ has opened arms of grace and forgiveness for any idolaters in this room, which, by the way, would be all of us. Will you heed God's wisdom, God's diagnosis, and will you receive the remedy by putting your hope and trust in the faithfulness of God shown to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ? God is faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that none of us here are free from this idolatrous bent in our hearts. Lord, it is an infection. It is a brokenness that is common to all humanity. And so because of that, God, we ask that you would uh, make clear to us uh, the reality of idolatry in our hearts. Expose our idols, God. We know that you don't expose us to shame us, but you, you expose and you convict and you show us a picture of our true selves in order that we might turn to you to receive your, your unending grace and mercy. And so, God, we ask that you would do that, and we ask that you would help us to lift our eyes to your faithfulness, shown to us through the work of your son, Jesus, who, who loved us and gave us, gave himself for us. Lord, help us to turn from our idols and to turn to you who cares for us, who is faithful to us, who is good to us, and who loves us. We ask that you would do this, that our community and the people around us would would be strengthened, would be built up, and that your name would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.